0: A listener production.
1: This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, onto our first question. Hi Adam, it's Michael from
0: Melbourne. I know most investors say they want a warm introduction, but I was wondering whether you think there is any merit in reaching out cold to a potential investor, and if so, how you would recommend it be done. Once you have secured a meeting, what do you think is
1: the most important thing that you need to convey in your pitch? Thank you, Michael, from Melbourne for the great question. Uh, It sounds like you're a a young entrepreneur yourself, which is great. So really important question and and one that that Y Combinator actually spends a lot of time on, Y Combinator being the the great incubator based out of San Francisco, founded by Paul Graham. And and Paul absolutely recommends a, a warm intro, uh, and, and just to define what a warm intro is, a warm intro is when you you get an introduction to someone, usually an investor, from another person who knows that person, uh, and it's it's a it's a much much better way to to get that person's attention. Uh, I get lots of cold and lots of warm, warm intros. You're far more likely to to speak to someone in a warm intro doesn't mean you always will. And often I'll get a warm intro and sometimes that just the, the investment might not be for me. I don't want to waste the founder's time uh, at all. I often, I'll often say front, this is an investment for me. Happy to speak to the founder still, but maybe look somewhere else if, if all they want is money. Uh, and often the founders to their credit will still want to take a meeting and, and get some guidance. But warm intros are always preferable and a great way to get a warm intro is just to, to look through mutual contacts and, and it's a pretty small world that the founder investment community. So you can usually find a warm intro. Uh, and if you can absolutely do one, it's far, far more effective than a cold intro. That said, and to your question, you can't always get a warm intro. Uh, sometimes you just don't know the know the person you're trying to reach. So sometimes that means you've got to do a cold intro. And what a cold intro is, is simply emailing or, or phoning. Usually it's an email uh, or or it can be through LinkedIn, email or, or LinkedIn-ing, DMing uh, an investor—it's a much lower hit rate. Often you'll you'll get uh, cold in cold uh, outreaches and tend to ignore them. They can you get so much spam and so many communications these days. Uh, angel investors and VCs and the like will miss genuine uh, intros or, or cold reach outs. So, cold reach outs definitely aren't preferred. But that's not to say they they don't work. I've I've uh, spoken to many people of cold intros uh, or even a semi cold intro where. Somebody reaches out through a, through a common uh, a common theme, maybe a uh, both run e-commerce businesses, or, or you've got another commonality. So the the warmer you can get, even if it's not warm, the better. But generally, uh, if you can't get a warm intro, a cold intro via email and trying to find some sort of commonality, talking about the person, personalising the communication is always going to work better. Somebody tells me they're a, a regular customer of Luxury Escapes and have been on twenty Luxury Escapes holidays that's probably more likely to get my attention, uh, than someone who hasn't. And it still may not, uh, lead to a meeting, but at least you're going to get my attention. At least there's a commonality. So that's, that's, one really big point. Once you get that, that meeting, uh, that's probably about 10% of the way, maybe 15% of the way. And I think it's one thing to remember through this whole pitching fundraising process, just how hard it is. And the, it's a really scary stat that 99% of, uh, Founders that try and raise capital aren't able to raise capital. So only that one percent of uh, founders can can even raise a, a genuine seed round. Uh, so it's it is incredibly difficult. If you're struggling to raise money, or if you listen to this and you've, you've got a startup and you don't know how you're struggling to raise, it is hard. Uh, keep at it. Certainly, grit and determination is is a is not only an important factor in running a business. It's also an important factor in in raising money. So uh, being, the, I think, I certainly when I've raised money for for companies, I've run. I've done upwards of 70 or 80 pitches and, and you certainly get better at it, but you've just got to keep pitching. You get a lot of rejections. Infamously, I think Airbnb, Brian Chesky from Airbnb, uh, famously, I think, put on Twitter or, or, or LinkedIn the sort of 20 or 30 rejections he got on what is now a $100 billion business. So there are plenty of times where the business is right, you're right as an entrepreneur, but the investors just don't see the the the, the, the value, there, the competitive advantage there. And that's not a fault of the founder, that's a fault of the investor. So once you have got that, that meeting, what's the most important thing to convey in a pitch? Well, it's probably a couple of things. So as a sort of benchmark, the business needs to be sensible. By sensible, I mean, there's got to be unit economics that seem to make sense. Uh, and in most times you're pitching an early stage business or a very early stage business, there aren't what we call genuine unit economics because you haven't made sales yet, but you need to have what what's called a genuine TAM. TAM is, is uh, acronym for total addressable market. So what you want to do is have a, a a genuine TAM and a business that makes sense to the, to the investor. But what most investors are looking at, and I've said this before on the show, is probably less important than the business itself is looking at the founder. And I'm certainly looking at the founder. And one thing I'm really looking for is how gritty is this founder? And does this founder has, have the ability to, to really quickly and seamlessly pivot the idea uh, to, from often multiple times? And, and most businesses, if not almost all businesses, have, been, have had a number of pivots across the journey. And, and what you're looking for as an investor and what I'm looking for, an, as a, for as an investor and a founder is a really gritty investor who will be willing to be commercial enough to know what works and what doesn't and be able to really be agile and quick to pivot. So I'm always looking for that. That's, that's generally the most important trait that, that certainly early stage investors to look for. Uh, early stage investors look for in a, in, a, in a business in a founder in a pitch, uh, but you've got to make sense. You've got to make sure the deck isn't too long, isn't too wordy, it really does show that you can build a competitive advantage and you can build a business that once you pump money in, so the things I always look for aside from a great founder is if I invest money in this business, will the business get better? Are there benefits to scale? So some examples are if I if I see a business in the, and it's an e-commerce business, and it's and it's making revenue, and the unit economics look okay, and its website's terrible. To me, that's actually a really positive signal, not a negative signal, because I know we can always fix a website. We can fix the product. Product isn't it's generally a competitive advantage. So if if I see uh, an investor, I see there's lots of room to grow. They're doing lots of things right, but capital will help it. So if you're seeing showing. Uh, for example, that it costs you a dollar to get a customer, but the average customer is spending $10, you know that you can invest a lot more in marketing and you'll make more money. That kind of thing is really important. So I, want, I don't want to see an optimized business that's perfect already. I want to see a really gritty founder who's put everything on the line and has a business that can grow with more money and and see a higher return on equity, the more money that gets put in there. So that's, that's the really key things to get across in the pitch, but yeah, getting a warm intro is really important. And then once you've got that, that meeting, making sure that you use the meeting to really show that investor how you can create a great return for them. Thanks for the question.
0: G'day Adam, it's Paul from Carlton here. I'd be really interested to know in how you in the early days identified the type of team you needed to build the business and how you sold your vision to them. And also, is it any different today now that the business is well and truly established?
1: Thanks. Thank you, Paul from Carlton. I think it was three really good questions there and really important questions for, for anyone starting a business or, or growing a business. Uh, team is absolutely the differentiator between, especially at an early stage between great businesses and businesses just don't make it. And certainly from our experience, whenever I invested in a, in a business, the team is what creates the difference. Uh, if I h- hark back to our team and that, t- and, and the, types of people you need in the team absolutely change as the business grows. And, and you sort of touched on that in your question, but in the early days of a business, you need a, really need really smart commercial generalists. So people who can do everything. A founder's the head of sales. You're the main salesperson. You're also the head of product in many cases. You're just generally building, guiding where the product gets built with, with the engineers. Uh, you're generally not a head of engineering as well. Usually you bring in engineer or co-found the business with engineer you're also probably head of customer service. So you, as a founder, before you've got a team, you're, you're acting on all those touch points. So you're, you're bringing in customers, you're servicing those customers, uh, you're serving those customers the product and then you're servicing those customers post-product. And you need a team that can really adapt alongside that super fast pace. So having a a team of of people who, and these people generally who you, you hire early days, aren't super expensive resources because you simply don't have the money to pay Two, three, four, five hundred thousand $500,000 a year, or in the case of, of Silicon Valley, value businesses now even more than that. So what you tend to do is find really smart, uh, gritty, hard running generalists who can problem solve and have heaps of initiative and can help you as founder or your founding team achieve those early goals. And that's working with customers, creating a product, getting that product to market and iterating really quickly on that product. Very much depends on the business. We had a, essentially an e-commerce business. So for us, Sales was really important. Development was really important. Finance was pretty important because you need to know: are you making money? Are you losing money? Uh, there's lots of uh, elements of the business that are important. There's there's quite a few elements that you can do as a as a founder. So the team you have initially uh, is very different to the team you have five or ten years down the track. Sometimes those people, like a founder, can grow with the business, but in many cases, and probably in most cases. Uh, the early team tend to drift off two, three, four, five, six years down the track. And we've got, we've got our business is about 12 years old. We've got a handful of people who've been with us 10, 11, 12 years, uh, but probably 98, 99% of people haven't. And and that's just a natural function of business. As the business grows, you need to bring in different skills uh, because it's a very different business. Uh, and it's and it's pretty rare that you see people go the whole way. It's pretty rare you see founders stay with the business for you hear that the, obviously the Zuckerbergs and the Spiegels and and, the, and Bill Gates for many years, but they're the exception, not, not the rule. In general, found and, and Google is a great example, founders will often bring in called the adult supervision. In Google's case, they brought in Eric Schmidt, actually not that long after they founded the business, probably only four or five years after Google started, they brought in that adult supervision. Sometimes it works really well. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work so well. It really depends on The skill set of the founder, and is the founder able to grow with the business? As are is the early team able to grow the business? And one really important thing, and this is sort of your second question, is how do you sell the vision? And selling the vision is really important uh, because whilst founders take a big risk, they're taking an investment risk, taking a time risk. Early employees taking almost as big a risk. You're leaving a safe job, a secure job, often in the corporate, to get. Often very little base. And in many instances, early stage employees are taking a huge risk in, in investing in that founder by way of sweat equity. So many uh, early stage employees won't get paid much base, will take either options, performance rights, or other forms of equity, which, if the business goes well, will be worth a lot. But many startups don't work. So early stage employees are taking a big risk. So it's really up to the founder and the founding team to be able to sell their vision, and as you said, to not only investors. But also to employees, it's almost as important, if not more important, to be able to sell your your vision. Also, sell the fact that you're going to be a steward of this capital and you're going to take care of employees and shareholder capital equally. It's, it's really important. And I've always said it in a job interview, it's not simply the employer interviewing a prospective employee. It's just as much the opposite. It's just as much, especially hiring senior people, it's just as much the potential employer, potential team member interviewing me or the founder or the senior executive. So it's super important to to ensure you go into to call job interviews or, or pitches with that in mind. It's really important. building important uh, building a strong team and a team that's adaptable and, and scalable is really critical. And without a good team, it's almost impossible to get a startup off the ground. How has that differed? How has that changed as the business has become more established? It's probably more nuanced. I think you always, as a as a business, we pride ourselves on on hiring the best possible people. That underlying theme hasn't changed from from our early days to, to now. What has changed is obviously there's more layers in the business. As founder and CEO, I no longer hire everyone in the business. We have two, three, four levels of of management potentially that can hire people. Uh, I'll t- tend to be involved in executive leadership team and senior leadership team hires and sometimes uh, operational leadership hires. But, but generally you have to entrust your team to hire the right people and by the same token, be able to share that vision. So many of my, of, of our ELT members are, are really good at that and and they understand what we are doing as a business, where we're going to go. And that's that's really critical that as the business grows, it's not just the founder anymore selling the vision, it's the founder, it's the executive team, and it's several teams under that. So it's really important to be able to communicate that vision as a founder to the entire team. And then that team be able to communicate the vision to potential staff members and team members. And in many cases, if you're uh, offering equity to team members, they need to be able to buy into the story exactly the same as an investor is because they're essentially buying into the company with their time. Uh, so you need to make sure that you're giving great value, giving a fair split so that, that whether you're giving options, whether you're giving performance rights with giving shares that those shares are valued fairly on a risk adjusted basis. So you're giving employees a really good chance to align with, with shareholders and make lots of money across the journey. And nothing, as a founder, nothing gives me more joy, uh, or maybe serving customers really well. But other than that, nothing gives me more joy than seeing really long, st- long term, loyal, incredible team members make millions of dollars as part of their journey. And that's, that's sort of one really satisfying part of being a founder. So Really good questions, super important. Any founders or potential founders listening, there is nothing more important than building the right team, especially if you want to scale the business. So really good questions and being able to sell the business, sell the vision is a big part of that.
0: G'day, Adam. I'm Cathy from Melbourne, enjoying your show. Um, I'm part of a healthcare startup down here and um, we're in the process of looking at software transformation. We have a new business that we're potentially acquiring in the coming months and we're looking at how we best integrate them into our established uh, business. We think it's a good opportunity for us to change over our software, but we do recognise that this is a huge undertaking on our part and that it could take up quite a lot of our time and, and impact on, on some of our other um, operations through the year. We're keen to know your thoughts on the timing of this process. Uh, Is it one that you think we should just get on with and and start up now or one that we should hold off on for a while? And also, how do you think we could um, possibly best structure this process so that it enables our um, operations and and doesn't hamper um, any of our service or our growth targets?
1: Cathy from Melbourne. A lot of people from Melbourne today. Thanks thanks for your question. It uh, sounds like a really interesting business in the healthcare space, which, is, which has been just an incredible space over the past, certainly over the past few years during the pandemic. And, and it sounds like you're in a really interesting spot, uh, transforming the business with an acquisition. Uh, I think I've talked about in, in previous episodes, buying businesses, whether you're a startup, whether you're an established business is absolutely fraught with risk. I think something like, I think data shows around 80 to ninety percent of acquisitions fail, and by, by fail I mean they simply just don't make money for the acquirer. It's generally a, it's just a, a simple wealth transfer from acquirer to target. So, I, no doubt you're considering that, but that's that's probably the first major point within any business. And, and and your your question actually really is a great example of why that happens. So you think you you do all this due diligence you've got your business, you're buying competitor, you're buying a bolt-on, you're, you're buying something in the same space. You, you, there's natural synergies. For example, when two businesses combine, you don't need two CFOs, you don't need two CMOs, you, you generally don't need two warehouses or factories. There is lots of what we call synergies and then costs that can take out simply duplicated. So you think, well, how can takeovers not work when there's so much obvious expense synergy? And there's a couple of reasons. One's, one's cultural. Uh, and that you've got a really good business performing well, chances are a target business is selling for a reason. And often a target business is selling because the business hasn't performed well. And it hasn't performed well, probably because the people aren't performing that well, or there's other inherent problems with the business. So the the notion that you're simply going to buy a business and transform aughts ills, into this wonderful concoction of a bigger business generally doesn't work. So the fact that you're thinking about these issues is is, is really good, uh, so that's why if you look at what Warren Buffett says is when you purchase a business, you need to build in a big margin of safety. So that is, if you think a business is worth thousand dollars, then pay eight hundred dollars. That's what's called a margin of safety, and that if something inevitably things don't go right or things go wrong, you've got that sort of comfort built in that you haven't overpaid. The two big risk areas, and we've done about fifteen acquisitions, and the two biggest risk areas in any acquisition is people. And we just talked about people in a previous question and making sure you get the right people and keep the right people and keep the right people motivated. That's a really big one and one that we'd always focus a lot on. The other really big one is, is in technical and systems. And often a business will, even in the same industry, will have very different systems. So the notion that, that you can simply just sort of put two businesses together quickly post-merge, it generally doesn't work. So one really big thing to focus on is start your technical planning and preparation, even work before the acquisition actually completes. So usually the way an acquisition works is a CEO, another CEO or a founder, another founder sort of come across each other and start talking or a board starts talking. And there's usually a probably between two and 12 month period where you're negotiating this acquisition. And if you, if you're reading the papers, you don't actually see this, but there's always a period of, call it a couple of months of kind of high level commercial negotiations. And then you go into legal negotiations and commercial stuff still being discussed in the background Usually takes the legals take probably two or three months and you sort of have the wrap up. So it's pretty rare to do an acquisition in less than six months from go to woe. The, probably the quickest ones we ever did were some really small bolt-ons in maybe three months, but often it would take six to 12 months. And often it's that first period of sort of getting to know each other and going through the motions that takes a long time. So during that period, that three to nine month period, you actually start a lot of the work then, especially the technical work. So what you really want to do is hit the ground running. Uh, it's a bit like a when you, when you, um, fit out a new office, you you can often get a rent free period. That's a bit like a rent free period. When you're sort of discussing, you can start doing DD, you actually start a lot of the work. So get your your technical team speaking to the target technical team if you can and understanding what needs to be done. It sounds like you're updating your operating system or it could be a CRM or it could be an ERP. So CRM is a system like Salesforce. Uh, and that's a, a way to record customer data, customer data. And an ERP is a system, effectively an accounting system. So you may have heard of Oracle or NetSuite or SAP. They're big ERPs, and that's used by any business that has stock, needs an ERP, essentially. And what an ERP does is tells you where your stock is, how much stock you've got, and how much profit you're making. And essentially, a big ERP like, like Oracle or SAP or NetSuite can take years, and often does take years, and costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement. And often, it's external consultants doing it for you. So and ERP integration is incredibly cumbersome. It's very costly. It's very important. You actually need this uh, as a business. We actually tried doing a net suite integration many years ago with a with a stock business we had. In the end, we sold that business, but it was an absolute disaster. We probably spent three years on it. Uh, incredible amount of time, incredible amount of money, incredible amount of resource, uh, huge opportunity cost, and never quite got there in the end uh, and eventually sold the business. So that, was, that has scarred us ever since then. But there is a, a very significant uh, investment there. Uh, and in terms of, you asked about process. So what I, I certainly wouldn't combine an acquisition and a big change in in base software because each and of itself is very risky. Implementing a NetSuite or an Oracle or even a Salesforce is very costly, very risky, very easy to get it wrong. Uh, whether you've got in-house expertise or using third-party consultants, consultants more often than not stuff it up. Uh, in-house you can probably rely on more, but probably don't have the expertise. So it is incredibly difficult, often goes wrong, almost always over budget. You very rarely hear of an ASX listed business to get an Oracle or a SAP integration done on budget. That pretty much never happens. Uh, So you can assume that's not going to work. Trying to overlay that sort of integration with a merger, uh, which has its own set of issues, is pretty much impossible. So Probably the riskiest thing you could do, and in my mind, probably the most foolhardy thing you could do is try and do both at the same time. We did it once. It was an absolute failure with us. Uh, Something to definitely avoid is overcomplicating things. I'd definitely try and bed the acquisition down. Use their existing systems. Use your existing systems. And after the merge, as you work out your team structure, then slowly plan integrating systems. Uh, Taking on, biting off more than you can chew is almost a guaranteed surefire way to to, uh, make the acquisition a disaster two key things to think about is how do you structure the team and how do you structure the systems and really methodically go through that. So you need to work out before you complete the acquisition, these are the people who I'm going to keep day one. These are people who probably we can't keep, unfortunately. Spend a lot of time making sure that people you are going to keep are engaged. What you don't want is the guns of the target to leave in the first couple of months, because what you're essentially buying is the goodwill of the business. So you're buying the customers. But more important, you're actually buying the talent in the business. So call it a, a small or large aqua hire. So the two things to really think about is have I got an, a great idea of how I'm going to structure these technical systems post-acquisition? And really important, how are we going to make sure the really good people stick around? How am I going to incentivize them through short and/or long-term incentives to make sure they stay around and that you have the combined business one-on-one really needs to make three or really needs to make four. So you need to be really careful. That's why most mergers probably don't work is people don't think through those complexities. Really got to think, how do I get this right in the medium term? And how is this going to be good for, good for us as a business going forward? Don't be blindsided by the larger business and the glamour. You need to do lots of hard work and mergers are hard, but when you get it right, they go really well. Thanks again for your question. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producers are Lindsay Green and Ed Gooden. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.